And uh, we're going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 10. We're doing a whole chapter, and I am going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. And because it is God's word, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm sure you noticed, but uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 814. And I'll be reading Matthew 10. And Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. No gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever village, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the, and the Gentiles. When they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. They have called the master of the house Beelzebub. How much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than sparrows. 
So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, uh, some of us have been in this passage reading it this week. Others of us have just had our minds going over the last few minutes as it's read. But uh, for each of us, there's all sorts of thoughts flowing. Questions in our mind, curiosities, maybe even conviction already by your spirit. Encouragement by your spirit. But we ask as we really settle in to this passage and think about it. That you would cause us by your spirit to understand it well. To be shaped by it. Not just in our minds but in our hearts. Conforming ourselves to the image of your son. Teach us these truths in Christ's name. Amen. This week, the world reeled as we heard news that ISIS had beheaded 21 men because they were, quote, people of the cross. And I want to just say... It is no coincidence, I believe, that God has it for our church to be in Matthew chapter 10 in the wake of these news, this news. A chapter where Jesus, it's the first time Jesus sends out any of his followers, sending out the twelve. Matthew records at length what he has to say, and he says things like in verse 16... I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Not a safe situation. Or verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Or verse 34. I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. Or just a few verses down in 36. A person's enemies will be the, those of his own household. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. His cross. Jesus describes for his disciples that they will be maligned. 
flogged and dragged before prisoners. Jesus' point, Matthew's point, God's point for us could not be more explicit or clear. If we follow Christ, the world will treat us with hostility. If you're truly a follower of Christ, representing Him in this world, it will be a hard go. Now, you think about ISIS kidnapping your husbands, beheading them. You think about Boko Haram in Africa, going into villages, burning down churches, kidnapping your daughters. Think of a pastor I heard speak to me in Vietnam who had been in prison for sharing the gospel and had been forced to work in the latrine. You hear stories of those in China or in Russia in days gone by where they would meet in secret. They would have to change the location of where they were meeting for fear that the government would crack down on them. These things should not be a surprise to us. The world is going to hate us. Jesus said. But it's not the message that we hear from evangelical pulpits today. I wonder how many churches in Canada, despite what's happened the last week, are talking about the hostility that following Christ brings. The songs that we sing as as Christians don't talk about this anymore. You You don't hear new songs being written that talk about this world filled with devils that threaten to undo us. No, that's not what our songs talk about. You go to the bookstores and you're not going to find on the Christian bestseller list a book that confronts you with the fact that the world is going to hate you. No. In our comfort-seeking, self-loving, money-chasing Western culture, The message of the church is that God will make your life comfortable. He will help you love yourself. And He will help you achieve all you want in this life. It's sad. There's a Christian musician named Steve Taylor who wrote a song called Easy Listening. It's actually a crafty song because... He, he, he puts it in the voice of a man of our generation, fast forward 40 years, speaking to the next generation about what the church was like in our era and reminiscing. But it's a stinging critique. Listen to what the man says of his day, our day. He says, my conscience was clear and my wallet was full. I didn't hear none of this sacrifice bull. He says, color me old-fashioned, but I still remember when the sermons were affirming because the Lord liked us better then. Tickle my ear, and I'll pay for your show. Sing about stuff that I already know. Steve Taylor's not too far off. 
least from my experience with evangelical Christianity, of which I am a part. And yet Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The passage before us is jarring. It's not what we're used to hearing. But you might object. Pastor, these words were given to the twelve disciples. They had a very specific task in front of them. He was commissioning them to go out on their first expedition, their first little jaunt as his disciples. These are, these are very historically bound words. They don't apply to us. And to you who object, whoever you are, thank you for bringing that up. I'm glad you did. You're right. These are historically bound words. Jesus was speaking things specific to them, right? He talks about only going to the Gentile or only going to the Jews and not going to the Gentiles. Something obviously when the Great Commission says to go to all disciples. He talks about not bringing an extra tunic. We could go on. These are historically bound words. But did you notice that Jesus actually takes this originally original kind of unique time-bound situation and he steps back and he states some things that are more paradigmatic two for all time in terms of people going out because those original 12 when they went out on their first journey they weren't flogged they weren't brought before kings and governors he's telling them something more general these first first 12 when they went out on their journey they didn't have their journey interrupted by the coming of the son of man so he is telling them things here that go beyond their immediate journey in front of them and this is something that was typical of the old testament prophets they would take a very uh, time-bound historical situation and they would start speaking to it And then they would take a step back and reframe the whole conversation on a more paradigmatic level, the big picture of what God's doing and what's coming. So Jesus takes a page out of that book and does the exact same here. So these words that Matthew records at length for us are full of needed application for us today. But like I said, I think they, they rock us. They jar us. It's not easy listening. I was thinking about our situation compared to those, say, in Egypt or in Vietnam or China. And I think there are some... Because of our unique situation in the West... And because of the teaching we've been receiving, I think there are some problems that are endemic to us as the Western church. 
three specific problems as it relates to what this passage is speaking to. I'd like to draw out those problems and then show how the passage answers each one of them. So three. The first, we don't expect hostility. So when it inevitably comes, we think something is wrong. Okay, that's just kind of a mindset I've seen in the Western church. We don't expect hostility. So when we start to resist it, we must think, oh, oh, I'm doing something wrong. The world doesn't like me right now. Second, endemic problem. We don't live with the kind of devotion that Christ demands. So we don't actually experience much hostility. The easy listening that we're getting, the nice tunes of how God's there to serve me and make my life better, have called us, caused us to live a less radical life. And we can carve that niche in this nice Western society where you don't really have to stand for Christ. In those other cultures, if you say anything, I'm standing for Christ, you're all in or you're all out. There's no tiptoeing. But here, you can tiptoe. And so we don't have this radical devotion. And so we experience less hostility than we might otherwise because we're not fulfilling Christ's demands on what it means to be a follower. Third endemic problem. We aren't prepared for hostility of any kind. So when it comes, albeit in lesser forms, we wilt. You see, we do face hostility in our day and age when we stand for Christ and we give ourselves radically to Him and love Him more than anything that this world could offer. Maybe with co-workers being maligned, ostracized, maybe in the media at large where we're disparaged, pigeonholed a certain way, called hate-filled hypocrites, bigots. Maybe even in family relationships, when you chose to side with Christ, you lost someone you love, or there was a fracture or a wound in that relationship. But we're not prepared to face that kind of hostility. So, in the face of it, we wilt. And what I'd like to do today is I want to show how Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10 address each of these endemic problems. So let's look at the first We don't expect hostility, so when it inevitably comes, we think something's wrong. Well, I've more or less already addressed this one as I surveyed some of what Jesus had to say in this passage. You know, if they call Jesus, associate him with Beelzebub, what are they going to think of we who follow him? You know, our leader, the one whose name we take as Christians, the symbol of him is the Roman cross, an execution, a symbol of rejection and hatred from the world. 
And so over and over again, Jesus wants his disciples to know you'll be hated. Now, think about Matthew. Matthew is writing to this kind of fledgling little church, and he's trying to uh, send them out to take over the world with the gospel. And as he's doing that, he's laying down some foundations for them, right? Foundations for a church on mission. And one of the things he's telling them right here in giving this extended sermon to these original 12 disciples, he's saying, look, as you do this, be forewarned. Beware of men. They're going to flog you, drag you before governors, kings. You'll be hated by all. You're not above your master and how you're going to be treated. Over and over again, he reiterates this. And it's a message that's carried through the New Testament so that in 2 Timothy 3.12, you hear all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That should be our expectation. We need to have that mentality. So Matthew 10 offers a corrective to that thinking. This... This idea that to be a Christian is to be well-liked by all. What about this second endemic problem? We don't live with the kind of devotion Christ demands. So we don't experience much hostility. I think verses 1 through 5 begin to address this. Matthew lists the 12 disciples. Did you notice that? By name. And and he says certain things about them. The first, Simon, who also went by Peter. He talks about brothers. Simon and Andrew. James and John. But what I'd say is the most notable thing about these 12 disciples is how ordinary they are. These men who were called to light the world on fire with the gospel message. We only hear the, the job, the profession of one of them. And it's tax collector. Which is not the one you'd be expecting. We're even told the detail Judas would betray him. Like Matthew's trying to underscore. These are a bunch of nobodies. These... This is who Jesus chose to work with. When I look around the room, we're pretty, we're pretty much all at least at that bar of a bunch of nobodies. And so when God is calling these things, calling those 12 to these things, he's not saying, okay, here are these 12 elite special forces who were uniquely gifted to do something spectacular. And isn't this great? These 12 over here. This is a call for every one of us. All of us. Then especially, Jesus gets into the, the call to follow him at the end. So we looked at the beginning, 1 through 5, and then you can look also at the end in 34 through 42. There's a, 
a series of whoever statements that begin, really begin in verse 37, but are kind of set up by what precedes that. Jesus begins by saying, you need to love me more than your own flesh and blood. Let me just say, if a mere man makes that claim, you reject it. You don't ask me to love you more than I love my wife or my children. If Jesus makes a claim like this and is a mere man, there's something wrong about who he is. He's to be rejected. But as the Son of God, the Messiah, Christ, Jesus, the Lord, He can make a claim to our highest allegiance. And so He does. And then He talks about how He says, whoever does not take His cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, we sometimes talk, oh, this is the cross I have to bear. You know, it's some hard thing you have in life. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, literally, if you are not willing to bear a cross, which the majority of the twelve disciples died on a cross for their faith, if you're not willing to take it to the nth degree and to lose your life, and I think he's talking about primarily in a very literal sense, if you're not willing to die for me, you shouldn't call yourself one of my disciples. You're not worthy to be called that. And of course, if you're willing to take things to that degree, it has all sorts of implications for how you live your life. A life of self-sacrifice for the causes of Christ. Giving yourself, dying to yourself, self-discipline for the sake of Christ. And so that's how we often metaphorically read this as taking up your cross and denying yourself. But here's what he says. Verse 39. If you count your physical life on this earth as if not worth much in compared to devotion to Christ. If you're willing to lay that on the line, you find true life. In this, in this heavy word of what the cost is of following Christ, there's this encouraging word. You dig into the lives of people who have who have pursued what this world has to offer. They've acquired wealth, or they have a family, and they have children and grandchildren. They have a beautiful girlfriend or handsome boyfriend or whatever it is. And you dig a little bit, just a little below the surface, and you find pain, you find emptiness, find brokenness, searching. 
Maybe not at every moment of their life. But along the way, there's this deep, undeniable emptiness. And maybe there are some here today who say, I've sought my life, and I hear what Jesus is saying, and I feel that I'm, I'm losing. I have no life, even though I've sought life, and I have it. But for those who have said, Christ is better. He's a thousand times better. His ways are good. The forgiveness he brings, the change he brings deep down is so worth it. And I give myself freely to him. I can testify to you. And there's a room full of people here who can testify to you that we've found life. Yes, life eternal after the grave, that this physical body is nothing, that there is something that will last eternally. But even now in this life, we have found something deep and lasting. The one who loses his life for, his, for God's sake, for Jesus' sake, will find it. There was a missionary named Jim Elliot. He and four of his friends made it their goal to reach a very hostile Ecuadorian tribe with the gospel. And he said this, the famous quote, he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. You get what he said there? To die? You can't keep your life. You give that and then you get to gain eternity. I think he was reflecting on this verse when he wrote those words. Jesus goes on. It's not just devotion to Christ. It's actually a devotion to his messengers as well. Those who carry the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, the true apostolic message, the message that the apostles wrote, that the disciples carried about what that gospel message is, the message carried in our scriptures. That gospel message, those who carry it, he says, if you receive them, you're receiving me and my Father. But if you reject them, you're rejecting me. He even talks about caring for them. Because when he talks about the little ones, he's thinking, he says, one of these little ones, he's talking to the twelve right there, one of these little ones refers to his disciples or those carrying the message and showing care for them. Even just a cup of cold water for them is reward. So, We need to be people who understand the call of Christ on our lives. The Christianity that is so often put out there in the West is a Christianity that sets a very low bar and says God is there to do your bidding. That's not the message Christ proclaimed. But the message Christ proclaims is even though it is a high bar, all in for Christ, 
total faith, total surrender. That is the message of life. That is the message that brings true meaning to you. Which brings me then to the third paradigmatic, or sorry, the third endemic problem that we face. And that is we aren't prepared for hostility of any kind. So when it comes, we wilt. Now, uh, Jesus obviously in this passage is telling them hard times are coming. Prepare, you know, hostility is coming. You shouldn't be surprised by that. But I'd say even more than just that, that overarching point, he's actually telling them here's some ways to be prepared for that hostility. This chapter, maybe more than any other chapter in the Bible, is showing us how we should be prepared for that hostility. So I want to spend the remainder of the time going through what I think are three questions that Jesus answers. So we did kind of the beginning and end of our passage. We're going to move through the middle of our passage, verses 5 all the way through verse 33. And we're going to look at three different questions that I think Jesus is answering that help us, that help our mindset as we encounter the hostility that we will inevitably face in this world. The first question we see in verses 5 through 15. And it is this. On whom do you depend? On whom do you depend? Now verses 5 through 15 are, are the most obviously bound by their historical context. Yet the implied principle under there is very clear. He tells his disciples as they go out, they are to take, accept no pay. They need to rely on others for their provisions. He talks about how they, they shouldn't be um, desperate, you know. Uh, there's this sense of, if they accept you, so be it. Your peace rests there. If they reject you, so be it. Move on to the next place. There's not this kind of agony, oh, are they going to like me? Are they going to accept me? No. I don't need, I'm going to look to God for provision and rely on others. I don't need to be desperately seeking, will they accept me? Their job was to make the message known, to proclaim the message, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is to proclaim the gospel message. And then there's almost a, a disengagement. Trust God with the results. You don't have to agonize over those things. If they accept it, praise the Lord. If they don't, there was something that Jews would do in Gentile lands if they were walking through a Gentile city. When they'd leave, they'd knock the dust off. They'd try to get all the dust, the Gentile dust off of them so they could leave. And he says, do the same gesture there. Kind of say, you're acting like Gentiles in rejecting this message that I've offered. And your, work, your treatment as Jews acting like Gentiles will be worse than the treatment of the Gentiles who rejected me. But there's this confidence in God. Why is he giving all these procedures to do? I think of, um, I had a friend who was in the military. And I always like to kind of pick their brains a little bit. What did you do in boot camp? It kind of fascinates me. Well, this, this particular friend talked about how they were uh, given training and kind of being able to navigate. So you're plopped down in the middle of nowhere and you have to be able to have these different tools and figure out how on your map to get from here to there because that's a real-time war situation, right? 
And so they'd be given all these tools, but then they would be plopped down in the middle of nowhere. They didn't know where they would be. They are told to find their way somewhere. And what the military was doing was teaching them to rely on their training. If you don't have anything else but the training we've given you, then you've got to be able to rely on that training and see that as you rely on it, it gets you where you need to go. That's what Jesus is doing with these disciples, right? He's putting them in a situation where they've got to just rely on God. They're not dependent on themselves. So he puts them in this situation, their very first journey. Yes, it's historically brown, but he's teaching something there of reliance on him, looking to him as they proceed. If we are clinging to God, if we are looking to him, if we see him as a big God who can provide, then we are not caught up in the whims of man. So when somebody is a little critical of us, it doesn't send us plunging. If, if a relationship is a little bit fractured, it doesn't send us into the depths. If somebody uh, starts to, you know, warm to what we're saying, it doesn't send us shooting up and then crashing down when they later reject it. We're, there's a steadiness it brings when we're clinging to God and looking to Him. So on whom do you depend? Verses 6 through 15, we must depend upon God, not upon ourselves, our own ability to sell the message of Christ, our own ability to provide for ourselves and to make it in this world and be strong enough. No, we must depend upon God. Then in verses 16 through 25, he asks us, what is your mission? You see, it's in this, this section that he really starts to lay it on heavy in terms of the kind of hostility they're going to face. But he, he says there's a purpose in it all. Look at the ver- end of verse 18. All this is going to happen to bear witness so that you can bear witness before them and the Gentiles. To make that message known of the kingdom of God, the good kingdom of God that's at hand. To make the gospel message known. That's your task. And so when this hostility comes, you keep focused on that. And so then after that, he talks about how you'll have a word from the Holy Spirit to speak about this message. And then he goes on and says, look, they're going to be hating you, but, but keep enduring. Yeah, I think there's a general statement about enduring and salvation. But I think he's talking about the specific work of making that message known. Keep enduring in that with a sense of urgency because one day the Son of Man is coming. This whole section is framed around continuing to keep the message central. What are we about? What is our mission? Now, if our mission is to make Jesus' kingdom known, how specifically are we to do it? And there are actually uh, five different things that Jesus brings out here. So he begins, Be wise as serpent and innocent as doves you're going like sheep in the midst of wolves and he says there needs to be something about your character there needs to be like a dove a certain innocence certain purity and yet like a serpent you shouldn't be naive so you go into that hostility and instead of being embittered by it all You're aware that it's coming, 
and you maintain your purity in the midst of it all. And then verse 17, beware of men. He wants us to be prepared that actual flesh and blood people, people that we love and care about, people that are respected in society, but people, flesh and blood people will turn on us if we stand for Christ. Be aware of that, he says. But when it happens, verse 19, don't get anxious about what you are to say. He says the Holy Spirit will actually give you words in those situations. And, and this isn't, this isn't I, I don't think that when he's talking about this, he's talking about some kind of like Ouija board experience where you sit there and you kind of become nothing and then your mouth, and all of a sudden you're saying things. What's going on here is the way the Holy Spirit often works is he takes truths and this Holy Spirit who is within me calls truths from his word to mind and he brings them to my mind and I remember truths of scripture that in a typical situation I wouldn't be able to do. And so I'm speaking forth the word of God with particular power. Many of us who have stepped out for Christ have experienced this. You're having a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden things are coming to your mind. You did learn them at some point. They were back there somewhere, but you don't even remember where you learned it. And the Holy Spirit is calling these truths from God's word to mind as you speak them to others. So you don't need to sit there in agony. I, I, I got to just, if I, don't, if I don't say it exactly right, they're going to be, oh, I got I to gotta be clever enough to, oh, this is, No. Be prayerful. Yes, you prepare, you think, you get your mind immersed in Scripture, but at the end of the day, you're trusting the Holy Spirit to bring those words to your mind, especially in crisis situations. And then in verse 22, he talks about endurance, not giving up. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think that kind of fits in the last section of the call that Christ placed on us. This isn't, hey, you know, a little firework shining bright for a little bit and then you're gone. Jesus has a parable about that and the kind of seeds that grow up and are gone. Somebody who actually develops roots and grows and endures. Particularly endures in the work of the ministry that God's called us to do. It calls them to endure and he says with a sense of urgency. Now, particularly here, he talks about the Son of Man returning. And there's different commentators get hung up on exactly what he means by all that. I think probably, since he's talking about going to the tribes of Israel, or the towns of Israel, and the language of the Son of Man coming, kind of Old Testament Jewish mindset would have been coming in judgment, that there was a time in A.D. 70 when really the Jewish nation just fell apart. Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was completely leveled. It was a horrible, horrible time. Intense persecutions broke out against the Jews. That's when the dispersion, the real dispersion took place of the Jews. And the Jewish people were never the same after that in terms of their identity and their geographical location. So I think he's saying, look, you guys have a task to do to get to every town of the Jews and make Christ known. And before that even happens, you've got to get there because before it even happens, there will be this coming judgment that will sweep down and uh, they'll be scattered. So time is of the essence. And then he says, look to the pattern of Christ in verses 24 and 25. How do we stay on mission? 
we keep Christ and his example and who he was, we're going to follow his pattern. So preparing for hostility, verses 6 through 15, showed us that we need to know on whom we depend. Verses 16 through 25 show us what our mission is. And verses 26 through 33 answer a third question, and that is, whom do you fear? Jesus knows that the hostility he's just told us about in verses 16 through 25 are going to cause, they're going to raise fear in us. And certainly I've heard, as, as the news has told us about the different persecutions around the world in increasing measure, I've never heard as much chatter about Islam, Sharia law, and things like this that is driven by fear. It's going to happen. But this passage, verses 26 through 33, are telling us how to handle fear. So verse 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, and do not fear... A little later, rather fear him. And then verse 31, fear not. Don't fear, don't fear him or them, fear him. Don't fear. He's telling us how to handle our fear. And it has to do with who we fear. Uh, My kids are of, of the age that they often are scared at night. Right? They'll wake up crying and you go in, I'm scared. And being the loving, gentle father I am, I say, okay, I'll keep you, I'll lay with you. No, I'm in the middle of the night, and I'm not thinking clearly, and I just wanted to be quiet and go back to sleep. So I've tried to teach them their own tools for being able to handle the fear that they're inevitably going to face in the middle of the night. So I talk about the importance of praying to God and remembering that God is bigger. I tell them to close their eyes. It helps to close your eyes. And I tell them, keep your head on your pillow because you'll fall asleep inevitably and then the fears are gone. Right? So some tips that I give them. Jesus here is giving some tips on how to deal with fear. And I think at the root of all of how we deal with this fear is the, the, the root question is, whom do we fear? So he first, the first reason he says we should not be afraid, verses 26 and following, he says, the truth will emerge. Um, you're trying to plan a... Uh, surprise party for somebody and it's really awkward because you're like having to act like you're forgetting their birthday and they're starting to get angrier and angry at you and you can t- sense that right but but you're able to endure that because you know soon the truth is going to emerge and then it'll all make sense jesus is saying the same thing here look Yeah, it seems like you're the odd one. You're the one who's kind of being ostracized or maligned or or flogged or whatever. But know that time will come when the truth will emerge. And then he goes on to say, that's why you should be proclaiming it. That's why you should be making it known. What I've told you, you've got to just publish everywhere. Because this is the truth that at the end of the age will be made known to everyone. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord of all. So, it will emerge at one point. So, when you're fearful, keep at it, knowing that the truth will emerge. The second thing he talks to to him about 
is he says in verse 28, look, there's your earthly life, which is already just a vapor. And then there's your soul, which lives eternally. Who are you going to fear? People can take this life? Can't touch your soul? Or are you going to fear the one who has the power over your soul? Again, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. You don't need to be so fixated on man and his opinions and his ideas. He's here today, gone tomorrow. What can he do to me? Take my body away. Well, then I get to be with God for eternity. The next thing that he draws their attention to is God's loving providential care. Verses 29 and 30, 31. Two sparrows, just a penny. And yet, God knows every single one that falls to the ground. He even knows how many hairs are on my head. The intimate knowledge, the loving care of this providential God who knows all things. And he says, you're worth more than a sparrow. Look at your loving God who cares for you and you can endure. God who knows all things, who's so powerful, cares for you. And then in verses 32 through 33, he says, and... If you're willing to stand for me at the end of the day, at the end of the age, I will stand for you. There's great reward in following Christ. Yes, if we abandon him, he says the inverse, right? There's a cost to following Christ. If you say, I don't know you, if you deny him, he'll deny you. I was sitting around with my kids at the table some time ago when the first ISIS attacks were taking place, or we were hearing about them, I should say. And uh, and one of my children says, well, if they told me I had to say I, I reject Jesus or they were going to kill me, i just tell them I reject Jesus, but I wouldn't inside. And there is a certain sense, <laughs> that'd be tempting, but, but Jesus is saying here, no, you need to be willing to say, this is my first allegiance. Follow Christ. Don't deny him. Yeah, okay, I won't deny him when I'm before the firing squad. But will I when I'm at the water cooler or when I'm out at the restaurant with my coworkers, or when I'm at the family reunion? So we remain strong in the face of fear because we know who's the one who's ultimately powerful and we remain loyal to him knowing his loving care for us. I know that's a lot. I know we've dug through a lot. I know we all have what's across the way on our mind by now. So let me just draw us together in this way. I do think if you really grapple with this passage, it kind of rattles us. It rocks us. It's not easy listening. It challenges us. It gets in our face. But it also encourages us. Because it reminds us that in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of this hostility, we have a God that we can depend on. A loving Father who is looking out for us, that we can trust Him, that we don't have to be anxious. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? I can look to Him and I can trust Him. I talked about Jim Elliot, the missionary to the, the Aka Indians. And 
they finally had this opportunity to actually go into the tribe. They'd learn the language. It was this really, really cannibalistic, horrible tribe. But they were going to go and make the gospel known to them. And they gathered, they sang a song, and then they went in. He and his four friends. And all five of them died. They were killed by those Indians. He gave what he couldn't keep to gain what he couldn't lose. Do you know what exactly what was said here by Jesus in Matthew 10 comes true? God was doing something much bigger even than their lives. And through the persistent efforts of their, of their widows, the gospel was brought to the Aka people. And now it's almost an entirely Christian tribe. And the song that they sang right before they went into the jungle... It was called, We Rest on Thee. And it goes like this. We rest on Thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in Thy strength, safe in Thy keeping tender, we rest on Thee. And in Thy name we go. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling. And needing much more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. We rest on thee our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. And when passing through the gates of pearly splendor. Victors. We rest with thee through endless days. Now that, that is exactly what's being talked about here. Courage, strength, this little fledgling church that's going out into a hostile world and Matthew wants to know, rest on your shield and your defender. You go not alone against the foe. Let's pray. Father, there is so much we've covered here in these 42 verses. I'm sure that in different ways your Holy Spirit is working in the hearts here and my own heart. Thank you for that. And I pray that the lessons you want us to learn would be learned. And I pray that we'd be people who understand hostility will come, who understand the call you've placed on us, that we'd be radically devoted to you. And God, I pray that we would rest on you. We would not fear. In Jesus' name, amen.